Blog Talk Radio. You're listening to the Totally Driven Entertainment Radio Network. In the future, none of you are heroes. You're legends. Get driven. Stay driven. Gentlemen, welcome to the Bareback Facts, and today we're going to be talking about a personal favorite topic of mine. That's right, everybody's favorite terrifying creatures, zombies. So, without further ado, let's not waste any time standing on ceremony, because we're going to get to talk plenty about ceremonies as we move forward. Let's get into this thing. So, we want to start first off with, where do zombies come from? Where do they trace their roots? Zombies can be roughly defined as reanimated walking corpses. Now, throughout the years, we've seen numerous films and numerous books involving corpses that rise from the grave to devour the living. But where do these stories come from? Where does one of the most terrifying figures in the horror genre get its roots. Well, believe it or not, zombies actually come out of a religious, actually have religious roots uh, and and very strong cultural roots. So let's get started right away uh, with where they come from. The word zombie itself is thought to come from the word in zombie, uh, which is a Congo word for soul. Now, for those of you unfamiliar uh, with the period of colonization and a period in history in which European, which is a period in which European countries uh, had begun to establish their control over uh, places such as Africa, um, South America, and eventually North America. Uh, This is a period uh, marked by uh, the beginnings of the slave trade, um, the systematic destruction of indigenous peoples uh, in North and South America, and ultimately uh, the exploitation of peoples from Africa and the Caribbean. Now, origins of our story about zombies, we must look into a very syncretic religion known to many today as voodoo. Now, voodoo itself is a collection of various cultural beliefs that stem from groups of people from Africa, specifically the Congo and various other places in which slaves were acquired by the Europeans and brought to the Caribbean. Uh, They are a mixture of those beliefs about uh, about ancestor worship, veneration, uh, magic, witchcraft, uh, and the like, all mixed together with religious, uh, with the religious connotations brought in by Catholicism, as many slaves were required to, were essentially required to convert to Catholicism. Uh, so it's a synthesis of their own cultural beliefs, Catholicism, as well as the new local sort of beliefs that they are being exposed to as a result of being moved uh, to this new. 
region, which would be the Caribbean, or for many, modern-day Haiti. Now, uh, there is some speculation that the word zombie itself derives from West African languages. Um, now, there's end zombie, which means corpse in the Mitsogo language of the Gabon, uh, and Nzambi, which is, means spirit of a dead person in the Congo languages. Uh, now, these were the areas where European slavers forcibly transferred, transported uh, vast numbers of the population across the Atlantic to work in the sugarcane plantations of the West Indies. And the vast profits of these plantations uh, motored the rise of France and England uh, to the status of world powers. The Africans took their religion with them, uh, but French law required again, slaves to convert to Catholicism. So what emerged from this was a series of elaborate uh, syncretic religions, uh, creatively mixing elements of different traditions, uh, voodoo in Haiti, obeya in Jamaica, and Santa, Santeria in Cuba. So these uh, cultural beliefs mixed with Catholicism, mixed with all these sorts of uh, folkloric stories and folkloric beliefs about magic, become the bedrock from which zombies rise. So what exactly, then, is a zombie? What is a zombie? Well, zombies themselves have always been sort of identified as people who have died and risen from the grave, right? Reanimated corpses, mindless, hungry beings whose sole purpose is to devour flesh, right? Uh, they breach our deepest taboos. Cannibalism, because they eat, they eat us. Grave desecration, they rise from their graves. And the separation between life and death. So they're both at the same time. They're both living and dead, at least in the context, at least as we understand it today, right? But for people, uh, for, for these people who have come up with this idea of zombies, zombies are quite different. Uh, in Martinique and Haiti, uh, zombie was a general term for spirit or ghost or any disturbing presence at night that could take a myriad number of forms, uh, but it gradually coalesced around the belief that a bokor or witch doctor could render their victim apparently dead, either through magic, powerful hypnotic suggestion, or perhaps some secret means uh, via poisons and potions, and then revive them as their personal slaves. Since their soul or will has been captured, the zombie, in effect, is the logical outcome of being a slave without will, without name, and trapped in a living death of unable ending labor. So when we look at zombies specifically, and we look at the fears and anxieties surrounding them, what do we have? We have who have no free will. They have no name. They have no identity. And they're trapped in a situation where they are, un, they are forced into unending labor. This sounds a lot like what many of these people were already experiencing, slavery, right? Uh, so the imperial nations of the north, uh, specifically the United States, uh, became, and, and to a degree, uh, you know, Britain still, uh, became obsessed with voodoo in Haiti, um, in specifically, uh, conditions there were dreadful. Uh, the French, this was a French colony for, for a good period of time, and the death rate amongst slaves there incredibly high, so high that a slave rebellion eventually 
uh, would take place in which the masters would be overthrown in 1791. Uh, and the country would be named Haiti from this French Saint Dominique. Uh, the nation became the first independent black republic following a long revolutionary war that took place in 1804. Now, from then on, it was consistently demonized as a place of violence, superstition, and death because its very existence uh, was an affront to European empires. Uh, throughout the uh, European imperial world, we see countries now becoming incredibly concerned that, holy crap, like these people – they actually have minds of their own. They could overthrow us. They could take our power away. And we got a revolution here. We can't have that. We can't have our colonies rebelling against us. And now, by no means, is this the only uh, rebellion uh, in the empire, uh, in the French Empire or the British Empire, for that matter. Uh, they see rebellions throughout their throughout the time that they are empires. They see rebellions. Some more successful than others. This one was successful thus making it a cause for incredible an incredible cause for concern now after the independence after haiti gains its independence cannibalism human sacrifice dangerous mystical rites uh and brutality in haiti and they stay consistent with this they continue uh this trend up into the 20th century uh after america occupies haiti in 1915, uh, and it's only then that these stories and rumors begin to coalesce around the zombie, the stories of the zombie. Now, American forces attempted a systematic destruction of the native religion of voodoo, which, of course, only reinforced its power. As with many things, uh, when you try to get rid of something, when you try to get rid of an idea, the idea becomes strong because people, people try to keep the idea alive. Um, people push back when you try to take their culture from them. Uh, and this is a key, this is a key example of that. So when the American uh, forces arrive uh, in 1915, uh, they become exposed to stories about the zombie. And of course they blow it way out of proportion. Uh, and we'll get into that in a little bit. Uh, but they attempted to destroy the native religion of voodoo, which, uh, which, began, which was failing uh, a failing effort on their part, uh, and it's significant that during that White Zombie, the film, uh, appeared in 1932, right at the end of the American occupation of Haiti. So the troops, uh, American troops, left Haiti in 1934. Uh, America went in to modernize uh, a country they considered to be backward, but instead returned home carrying uh, this primitive superstition instead. Uh, so American pulp magazines of the 20s and 30s were increasingly full of tales of the vengeful undead climbing out of their graves and chasing down their killers. Uh, their, these had once been immaterial specters. Now that they were the very physical form of rotting corpses said to be lurching uh, out of Haitian cemeteries. Uh, now, despite that, it wasn't really pulp fiction that brought the zombie into the pantheon of American supernatural. Uh, the American Supernatural. Two uh, writers not only traveled to Haiti, but also sensationally claimed to have encountered quote-unquote authentic real zombies. Uh, now, this is not just an imaginary gothic thrill, zombies that, according to them, actually existed. Uh, now, the traveler, writer, journalist, occultist, and alcoholic William Seabrook went into Haiti in 1927, and he wrote The Magic Island, uh, 
which is an account of his trip. Now, Seabrook, of course, uh, was a self-proclaimed negrophile, so a man who embraced quote-unquote primitivism as an ecstatic escape from his privileged white southern origins. So, yeah, he's going to be real credible. Uh, He had danced with whirling dervishes in Arabia and tried to join a cannibal cult in West Africa. Uh, In Haiti, he was soon initiated into voodoo ceremonies and claimed to have been possessed by the gods themselves. Uh, Now, if you're wondering why I changed the way that I spoke about that, this is because Seabrook uh, is largely, by many scholars, considered to have been full of absolutely full of shit. Um, so, as we said in mind, uh, then in one, in one chapter of his work called Dead Men Working in Cane Fields, the mention of zombies prompts a local to take Seabrook to the plantation of the Haitian American Sugar Corporation and introduce him to the zombies who work the fields at night. They were plotting like brutes, like automatons. Their eyes were the worst They were in truth like the eyes of a dead man, not blind, but staring, unfocused, unseen. Uh, Seabrook panics momentarily that that all the superstitions he had heard are true before plucking for a rational explanation. They were nothing but poor, ordinary, demented human beings, idiots forced to toil in the fields. Uh, And this chapter became the basis for the film White Zombie, and Seabrook often claimed he was responsible then for bringing the word into the American vernacular. Uh, the other writer that was the the other writer that had a massive uh, influence on zombie culture within the United States uh, was the esteemed black novelist Zora Neale Hurston. Uh, now, many of the Harlem Renaissance writers of the 20s and 30s were interested in Haiti as a model of black independence and campaigned against American occupation. Uh, Hurston was more conservative and thought the occupation was a good thing. Uh, More remarkably, Hurston trained as a professional anthropologist and was sent to study hoodoo uh, in New Orleans. This is the African-American version of voodoo in the bayous, uh, but it's a little bit more complicated than that, but we won't get into that. Uh, And they then proceeded to spend several months in Haiti training to be a voodoo priest. Uh, Hurston became increasingly spooked by her experiences, although her anthropological reports are cagey about these moments. Uh, in her informal travel book about Haiti, uh, Tell My Horse, uh, which was published in 1937, Hurston not only informs us that zombies exist, but that she had the rare opportunity to see and touch an authentic case. Uh, I listened to the broken noises in, its, noises in its throat, and then I did what no one else had ever done. I photographed it. Uh, so the image of Felicia Felix Mentor, the real-life zombie, is indeed truly haunting. Pretty soon after the meeting, Hurston leaves. Haiti hurriedly believing that secret voodoo societies were intent on poisoning her, although uh, Hurston was mocked for her credulity, uh, and her book was considered to be an embarrassment. Uh, So if she did encounter a zombie in Haiti, the woman that she captured with her camera might have been not so much an undead creature as a person who had suffered social death uh, and been cast out by her community, perhaps suffering from profound mental illness. As Hurston did, in fact, meet her in one of Haiti's mental hospitals. Uh, so, very, imagine that. Uh, nevertheless, the historical trauma of slavery underpins the terrible condition of being emptied out of the self, a woman without attachments left shuffling through a living death. Now, we see, so this is, 
Uh, a good start for us. So this is a good start for how we can trace where zombies come from. Now, according to the Oxford English Dictionary, the word zombie itself first appeared in English around 1810 when historian Robert uh, Southey mentioned in it in, in in his book, History of Brazil, but this zombie was not a familiar brain-eating man-like monstrosity, uh, instead a West African deity or uh, of some sort. Now, the word later became later came to suggest the vital human force leaving the shell of a body and ultimately a creature human in form but lacking the self-awareness, intelligence, and a soul. Uh, it was imported to Haiti, and elsewhere from Africa through the slave trade. Now, if we get into where what, what Haitians believed about zombies specifically, uh, or what people in the Caribbean uh, in general believed in the, in the religious uh, groups, that, in the religious communities of Voodoo and Santeria, uh, Haitian zombies were said to be people brought back from the dead uh, and sometimes men, or sometimes mentally controlled through magical means by voodoo priests called Bokors or Hunken. Now, sometimes the zombification was done as a punishment to strike fear into those uh, who believed that they could be abused uh, even after death. But often the zombies were said to have been used as slave labor on farms and sugarcane plantations. Now, in 1980, uh, one mentally ill man even claimed to have been held captive as a zombie worker for two decades, though he could not lead investigators to where he had worked, and his story was never fully verified. So, um, it's, for decades, Westerners considered zombies to be little more than fictional movie monsters uh, as a result of films such as White Zombie. Um, but uh, that assumption is questioned in the 80s when a scientist named Wade Davis claimed to have found a powder that could create zombies, thus providing a scientific for zombie stories. Uh, Davis himself didn't believe in voodoo magic, but he did believe that he had found something that could poison victims into a zombie-like state, a powerful neurotoxin called tetrodotoxin, which can be found uh, in several animals, including pufferfish. Uh, he claimed to have infiltrated secret societies of vocors and attained several samples of the zombie-making powder, which were later chemically analyzed. He would eventually write a book on the topic, uh, a pretty famous book, uh, the Serpent and the Rainbow, which was later made into a horror film as well. Uh, for a while, Davis was wild, wild, wildly and widely touted as the man who had scientifically solved the mystery of zombies. Uh, however, Davis's claims are later challenged by many skeptical scholars and scientists who regarded his methods as unscientific, pointing out that the samples of the zombie powder he provided were inconsistent and that the amounts of neurotoxin contained in those samples were not high enough to create zombies, uh, not high enough uh, to get people to just give up their free will, in other words. Uh, furthermore, the dosages used by the Bokors would need to be exact since too much of the toxin could easily kill a person. Others pointed out nobody had ever found any of the many supposed plantations filled with zombie laborers on the small island country. Now, in a second book, Passage of Darkness, uh, the ethnobiology biology of the Haitian zombie, Davis acknowledged problems with his theories and refuted some of the more sensational claims that had been attributed to him. Uh, he still insisted, however, that the Haitian belief in zombies could be based on the admittedly rare cases where a person was poisoned by tetrodotoxin and later revived inside the coffin, taken from their grave uh, and forced into subservience. Now, 
Furthermore, he added that there was much more to the zombie phenomenon than simply the powder. It was only part of a deep-rooted socio-cultural belief in the power of witchcraft. In Haitian culture, voodoo priests do much more than create zombies. They are said to bring both blessings and curses through magic. Uh, so in this way, we can assume that Davis at least had some cursory knowledge then of the cultural uh, belief in magic, and therefore it was more important that the people in Haiti believed in zombies than whether or not zombies were actually real. Um, now, thus, the stories of the real-life Haitian zombies arose like, you know, arose out of these sorts of works. Now, if we if we take a look at this from a more scientific standpoint, I don't want to say scientific. Let's take a look at it from more of a uh, measured perspective. Uh, the people in Haiti, they believe in this concept of the zombie. Now, if we look at sort of, you know, some of the statistics on this, it's estimated that 80 to 90% of Haitians serve uh, the spirits or practice voodoo. Uh, and in voodoo, all people die in two ways, naturally via sickness or the will of the gods, uh, and unnaturally, uh, so murder or by, you know, by being murdered or before their time. So those who die unnaturally linger at their grave, according to tradition, unable to rejoin their ancestors until the gods approve. Souls are vulnerable at this time, and their will may be snatched up by a powerful sorcerer, a boko, uh, and locked in a bottle, which the boko loses, uses to control their undead but unliving body. Other times he lets their body rest, but just uses their soul. So in, a, in, the, in the context of, of what Haitians believe about zombies, we can look at some of this, um, some of these sorts of things. Uh, what they believe about life and what they believe about death. So in their tradition, in the tradition of voodoo, you know, people die in two ways. They either die naturally because it's their time to die. You know, they get sick, they die. Uh, they're old, they die. Or, you know, they just die. You know, they, they, they go to sleep one day, they don't get up. Uh, or unnaturally. So they're murdered. Uh, they, they, they suffer, they die in a car accident. You know, something happens, they, they get killed suddenly. Um, in, in, in an unnatural way. Maybe they eat some poison fugu fish uh, and they die. But nonetheless, they die. It's during this period between death and moving on to the afterlife that their souls and their bodies become most vulnerable in the, in the Haitian tradition. So what this highlights to us is that these people, now that they're dead, they're, once, that once a person dies, they're vulnerable, control over their body, and they don't have as much control over their soul anymore because the two are separate at this point. This makes them very vulnerable to those people who would do harm to them, people that, they, people that could do harm to them, people that could use their position within the community to abuse them. Uh, the the Ho- Ho- Hogan and the Bokor uh, hold a very special place within the community, right? They are priests. They have you know, access to this otherworldly knowledge and supposedly access to magic. So these people hold a position of authority within the community. If someone, if they were to abuse their authority, it could become uh, dangerous for those people uh, who are, 
it could become dangerous for those people who are, in fact, you know, sort of just minding their own business, right? Uh, it can become dangerous for the everyday person. They don't have access to this uh, spiritual reservoir of power that the Bokor have or that the Hogan have. And so because of this, uh, they live in a bit in, in somewhat fear of this, but they but we can look at zombies as as another uh, important social construct, uh, much in the way that we've come to look at um, we can look at them uh, similarly to the way that we've come to view vampires in, in, in the Eastern European tradition as a societal, uh, as a socio-cultural control. Uh, why do we do these things? Why do we behave in this way? So uh, when, I, when we talked about vampires in the past, we talked about the fact that uh, people didn't want to be vampires, right? Um, scholars have said that Haitians, uh, that the people in Haiti and the people of Cuba, they're not afraid of zombies. They're afraid of becoming zombies, which is, which is, you know, it sounds like splitting hairs, but it's really not. Uh, they're not afraid of zombies themselves. They are not afraid that, that there's going to be zombies. They're afraid that they will become zombies, that they will lose their agency, that they will lose their freedom. They will lose their control. Uh, now, if we look at this from, from a historical, through a historical lens, uh, they, these are people who at one time, had no authority over their lives, had no power, had no agency, uh, you know, for all intents and purposes, uh, you know, they were property. They were, they were slaves. So they had no power um, in that sense. And, and that is something that has been ingrained in them uh, over the years is that there was a time when we, when we were not so fortunate, when we, when we were forced to serve, uh, you know, as someone else's slave, as we were forced to labor against our will, forced to do these, do this harsh work, uh, with, with no, with no hope for, for liberation. Uh, so this is, uh, a very real anxiety that was experienced by the generations that come before them. Uh, and, and, these beliefs come out of a time in which these people, many people are still experiencing that, uh, that are still experiencing the harsh conditions of slavery. Uh, so it's only natural that this would be an anxiety for the people in Haiti and, and in Cuba and in the Caribbean because they are the ones who are experiencing, who have experienced slavery. They have lived as slaves. And their grandparents have lived as slaves, and their parents have been slaves. And so now subsequent generations after the liberation of places such as Haiti and Cuba and, and various uh, island nations in the, in the Caribbean, uh, they hold on to that experience. Experience influences them culturally. Now – Now, according to tradition, the, the experience of a person who becomes a zombie does not have to be unpleasant for the soul or body under the right circumstances. A hardworking man might prefer to continue working rather than lie waiting in the ground, uh, especially if he's used by the boko to help with healing magic. Uh, more unsavory boko, however, 
could purposely kill a man to make a zombie, then force him into the mindless toil or worse, uh, black magic uh, and evil intentions. Now, it's important to note that zombies and Boko are only found on the fringes of the voodoo religion. They belong to the realm of secret societies and not the everyday praising of the Iwa, which are the gods within the voodoo tradition. Uh, so do Haitians believe that the dead rise and become at best helpers and at worst slaves? To some, zombies are just folk tales. So to some people in Haiti and other places uh, that, that have spoken of zombies, they're just stories. They're not real. Not everybody in Haiti is terrified of zombies. Uh, and some of, some of them would laugh at that. Uh, to others, they are as possible as car crashes. Still, uh, to others, they're somewhere in between. Some people are not sure about zombies. Some people don't know if they believe in zombies. And other people believe strongly that zombies are a possibility. Uh, most see zombies as a metaphor for hard life without reward and a loss of control or worse, a loss of faith. Uh, the few who do see, see zombies as concrete reality do not fear zombies themselves, who are uh, basically mindless and pathetic shells of who they once were. So they're not really much to fear. Uh, they fear becoming a zombie uh, under the wrong circumstances and against their will. So Haitians themselves, so the people that practice voodoo, they don't believe, or Santeria, they're not afraid of zombies. They're afraid that they'll become zombies, that somebody will manipulate their body or their spirit and force them to do uh, mindless work or force them to do evil things. Uh, so the Boko's power to make zombies is used more than more often as a threat to maintain social order. Uh, so only rarely will, will a Boko actually go through with the act of catching a person's soul uh, and bending them to their will. Uh, stories are told with the story, these stories are told with a great deal of laughter, laughter as much as with as much as with seriousness. And the zombie retain, remains a potent image in the rural folk tales and philosophical discussions of people in Haiti today. Uh, so, uh, scholars are ever sensitive to the stereotypes that are associated with voodoo, uh, and rarely explore the very present, still very present, zombie image in Haitian culture. And we get little information from reliable sources, uh, leaving horror films most of the time to replace the facts. Uh, those who do breach the topic are not treated very seriously and sometimes are accused of racism. Other scholars uh, ignore obviously unworthy resource uh, to them anyway. Uh, they believe many sources of research are actually unworthy. Uh, the most well-known researcher, again, to explore the Haitian zombie is Wade Davis. Um, and he, sets out to, he set out to actually prove the scientific reality of zombies, claiming to have found, uh, found them. Uh, despite sensationalist claims, though, um, Robert, there is a well-respected African art, histor art historian named Robert Ferris Thompson who actually has defended Davis uh, in an introduction to Davis's book, Passage of Darkness, uh, which, again, is the more critical uh, sequel to the original book, The Serpent and the Rainbow. Uh, Thompson writes uh, that he would never have been steered in the right direction, taught to take the zombie phenomenon seriously as a social sanction against the, of the greatest import had he not come into contact with the research distilled in Wade Davis's volume. So we talked about the work of Wade Davis, um, and to his credit, 
to his credit, Wade Davis, you know, despite the fact that his original book uh, set out on sort of a, almost what many would consider to be a wild goose chase, his second book was much more critical, and he was actually more critical of himself. Uh, Passage of Darkness was much more critical of of the original work that he did in uh, in the Serpent and the Rainbow, uh, and I think uh, that that's what sort of earns uh, Wade Davis's spot as a source that we can, you know, maybe not necessarily take everything that he says uh, to heart, but definitely take the spirit in which his work is uh, written seriously. Um, so it's definitely a must-read for somebody looking to research zombies. Now, covered the cultural background of zombies and where they come from. Uh, we've talked about, you know, the rich sort of cultural and religious history uh, and the influence of slavery on creating the mythos of zombies. Now I want to talk a little bit about uh, zombies in film. Because zombies are just all over the place in film, Right. We've got some truly iconic films and television series and literature involving zombies. Uh, but let's start with film. So uh, zombies really uh, hit the big screen first uh, in Victor Halperin's White Zombie. Uh, it had first appeared uh, in 1932 within months of Universal Studios' famous adaptations of Frankenstein uh, and Dracula. Uh, in White Zombie... Uh, there are lots of laborious explanations of the zombie for the American audience because it transports it into the popular culture, into the popular culture set of beliefs from Haiti and the French Antilles uh, in the Caribbean. Today, though, uh, zombies, today's zombie is the result of tr- the translation of this exotic zombie from the colonial margins to the imperial center. Um, you know, when we look at the film White Zombie. And it's kind of hard not to see why this film uh, was as, you know, was sort of as, uh, sort of made the splash that it made. Um, White Zombie Again, film in 1932, American uh, pre-code horror film directed and independently produced by Victor and Edward Halperin. Uh, the screenplay itself was written by Garnet Weston and based on the Magic Island, uh, a book by William Seabrook, who we've talked about. Uh, it tells the story of a young woman's transformation into a zombie at the hands of an evil voodoo master. Uh, and Bella Lugosi stars as the antagonist. Now, for those of you unfamiliar with the genre of horror, uh, Bella Lugosi uh, is sort of at the creme de la creme uh, of early horror horror films uh, as far as actors goes. He's famous, probably most famous, uh, for portraying Count Dracula in the 1931 film. Uh, but he was also in uh, he was also paired with Boris Karloff in The Black Cat, The Raven, uh, and Son of Frankenstein. Um, so, who's another big big time. Uh, so Bella Lugosi stars as the the premier bad guy, uh, murder legender, uh, with Mage Bellamy appearing as his victim. Now, much of the film is shot on the Universal Studios lot, borrowing many props and scenery from other horror films of the era. 
the film itself opens in New York, uh, opened in New York to negative reception with viewer, reviewers criticizing the film over-the-top story and weak acting performances. While the film made a substantial financial profit as an independent feature, it proved to be less popular uh, than other horror films of the time. Still, uh, it's considered the first feature-length zombie movie, uh, and a sequel to the film titled Revolt of the Zombies opened in 1936. Modern reception to White Zombie, however, has been much more positive than its uh, initial release. Some critics have praised the atmosphere of the film, uh, and compared it to the 1940s uh, horror film productions of Val Luton. Uh, others have said, still have an unfavorable opinion on the quality of the acting. Uh, nonetheless, uh, White Zombie can be considered uh, the first major zombie movie. Uh, and interestingly enough, it was filmed in 11 days in March of 1932. Uh, so it had a, and it actually had a small budget. Um, so very. If I can pull it up here, and, and it's not a very long movie. Uh, it's it's only an hour and seven minutes long. So, and and you can still get it. You can still watch it. Uh, it was released July twenty eighth, nineteen thirty two. Uh, so our first big foray into the into the world of zombies. Now zombies. Probably, it's safe to say that where zombies really take off, in Amer- in, at least in American film, is in the 1968 American horror film classic directed by George A. Romero and starring Dwayne Jones and Judith O'Day, Night of the Living Dead. No zombie Lover's collection of films would be complete without George A. Romero's original classic Night of the Living Dead, and no conversation of zombies in film would ever be complete without discussing this film. Um, The film itself was completed on a budget of $114,000, and it premiered on October 1st, 1968, uh, it became a financial success. It grossed $12 million domestically and $18 million internationally uh, and has been a cult classic and fixture in the horror genre ever since. It was heavily criticized at its release for its explicit gore, and it eventually garnered critical acclaim and has been selected by the Library of Congress for preservation in the National Film Registry as a film deemed culturally, historically, and aesthetically significant. Uh, one of one of the one of those times that a film transcends its genre and becomes such an influential piece of art that it just really proves itself as as a film worthy of not only being watched, not only of being shared, but being preserved. I mean, the the Library of Congress believed that this film was worthy of preservation in the National Film Registry. Now, the story itself follows uh, Dwayne Jones's character, Ben, and Barbara, uh, who's played by Judith O'Day, five others trapped in a rural farmhouse in western Pennsylvania, which is attacked by a large and growing group of unnamed living dead monsters drawing on earlier depictions in popular culture of the ghoul, which has led to this type of creature being referred to most popularly as the zombie. 
Now, Night of the Living Dead led to five subsequent films between 1978 and 2010, which were also directed by Romero and inspired two remakes. The most well-known remake was released in 1990 and directed by Tom Savini. Uh, So this is a film that made its mark uh, in the horror genre and didn't just make its mark in the horror genre. It made its mark as a massive hit success from, from, from when it came out and a piece of art that culturally cannot be understated uh, as far as its significance. Uh, we look at Night of the Living Dead. Uh, following, following this uh, film, we see the films Dawn of the Dead, Day of the Dead, Land of the Dead, Diary of the Dead, and Survival of the Dead, uh, each film tracing the evolution of the living dead epidemic in the United States and humanity's a desperate attempts to cope with it as in Night of the Living Dead. Uh, Romero peppered the other films in the series with critics uh, critiques specific uh, to the periods in which they were released. So we still have uh, also had a series spinoff of it uh, the Return of the Living Dead series. Uh, co-writer John Russo select, released a film titled The Return of the Living Dead uh, that offers an alternate alternate continuity to the original film than Dawn of the Dead, uh, but acted more as a parody or satire and is not considered a sequel to the original 68, 1968 film. His film spawned four sequels. The Return of the Living Dead sparked a legal battle, actually, with between Romero uh, and Russo, who believed... Uh, who believed that uh, his film had been marketed in in direct competition with Day of the Dead as a sequel to the original film. Uh, so these films, so so we can see that right now, just with the example of Night of the Living Dead, it spawned six subsequent sequels, uh, all of which had varying degrees of success, but nonetheless continued to expose um, us all to this idea of the zombie, the zombie mythos, and expand upon it, and expand upon it. Now, if we look closely at these films, that loss of agency that's discussed within the Haitian tradition exists within there. These zombies have no will of their own, but it's important now that we move in moving forward that we also remember that not only uh, do we have uh, mindless, roving, walking corpses what we care but it carries with it that that other fear the fear of cannibalization right the fear that uh, those people will rise to devour us uh, so now we look at uh, popular series today we have uh, the walking dead of course uh, which gets its uh, ground not only from this traditional tradition of the zombies but um uh, from a graphic novel series um, the, by the same name, uh, created by uh, Robert Kirkman and artist Tony Moore, and of course focusing on uh, key character Rick Grimes, a deputy uh, who was shot in the line of duty, awakens from a coma in the in the zombie apocalypse uh, that placed his state Georgia under quarantine. Finds his wife and son, meets other survivors, and gradually takes on the role of a leader among a group and later community as Rick and his group try to survive the apocalypse. Now, for those of you who haven't been living under a rock for the last, you know, seven seven years, 
uh, you know pretty well about The Walking Dead. It's been around for a while, but it's not by no means uh, the only uh, the only piece of literature that's been adapted to film, uh, or or for that matter, that's been adapted to television. Uh, just over the last couple of years, uh, we've seen more zombies zombie films. We've seen zombie films such as World War Z, also based off a novel. We've seen uh, we, we've seen Zombieland uh, come to the forefront as a as a movie. Now you can question the success of certain films as whether or not you know okay they are not as successful as Night of the Living Dead, not as successful as maybe Walking Dead, maybe not as you know not as significant, but it's still significant uh, that these films are being made because it highlights the fact that we ourselves are fascinated by the concept of zombies. We're fascinated by zombies. We are concerned about zombies. We're concerned about uh, the cultural implications of becoming a zombie, the, the anxieties that we hold about death, about life, uh, and about, you know, possibly, uh, possibly even, you know, falling prey to those who uh, we once thought we could trust. For, for the modern-day zombie, uh, for, for modern-day people, the zombie highlights different anxieties than it did uh, for the tr- in the traditional context. In the traditional context of zombies, uh, the the great fear was that you'd lose control of yourself, right? You you lose your freedom. You'd become someone's plaything. The modern fear is that you would become primitive. You would become primal. You would become violent, and you wouldn't be able to. So you wouldn't be able to control yourself. But you'd also become pr- a primal, more more violent individual. You you turn to quote-unquote baser instincts and begin uh, to become a more savage and, and violent individual, more hungry. You devour your neighbors, you know. These are, these are anxieties that exist within our society now, uh, this idea that not only do you lose control of yourself, but you, you become a beast rather than a human being. Now, um, we look at a film such as World War Z, uh, which you know premiered in uh, 2013 uh, in June. It was originally released uh, in London, I believe, the second of June. Uh, released 19 days later here in the United States. Uh, the budget for the film was 190 million dollars, but the box office uh, grossing of this film was 540 million dollars. Uh, so. Despite the fact uh, that the film itself received a great deal of criticism uh, for the way that the story is developed, the you know the effects, the story itself, uh, you know the general plot, acting, what have you. Uh, despite that, this became the highest-grossing zombie film of all time. Now you can like World War Z, you can hate World War Z. Uh, if you're a zombie fan, though, you have to be impressed. Because this film is the highest-grossing zombie film of all time, uh, they had a budget of 190 million dollars, and they nearly made five times that off the film. Uh, now, uh, there is a sequel in the works to the film. However, it's since been delayed. Um, it was scheduled for to be released this year in June, but obviously that didn't happen. Uh, so. Obviously, series. Um, 
And the book itself is a little bit different than than the film, as one might imagine. It's a uh, the book itself is titled World War Z: An Oral History of the Zombie War, uh, and it's written by Max Brooks. It's an apocalyptic horror novel. Uh, and it's a collection of individual accounts narrated by an agent of the United Nations post-war commission following the devastating global conflict against a zombie plague. Now, other passages record a decade-long stru- desperate struggle as experienced by people of various nationalities, and the personal accounts also describe the resulting social, political, and religious, as well as environmental changes that take place as a consequence uh, to of this zombie war. Now, World War Z itself, important to note, is a follow-up to Brooks' survival manual, the Zombie Survival Guide, which he published in 2003. Uh, Keep in mind the World War Z book published three years later in 2006. Uh, But its tones are much more serious. It was inspired uh, by The Good Ward, an oral oral history of World War II, 1984, uh, written in 1984 by Studs Terkel, and by the zombie films, of course, of George A. Romero, Um, Brooks used World War Z to comment on government ineptitude and U.S. isolationism while also examining survivalism and uncertainty. Uh, The novel itself was a commercial hit and has been praised by most of its critics. Um, So the book itself has been quite successful. The book series itself is a pretty pretty successful uh, story. It differs uh, from the movie, which kind of charts the adventure of this, you know, government official Brad Pitt, played by Brad Pitt. Uh, but nonetheless, important to note that, you know, Brooks cites uh, George A. Romero as a major uh, source for his, in, as, as a source of influence for him in writing the book. Uh, and it's interesting to note that, again, we have a key example. In, in this key example, we have people but we have another key example of how zombies have just sort of ingrained themselves in culture, right? That they, they're, they're not only in film, but they're in literature now. They're, they're everywhere. Uh, and it's sort of, it's sort of interesting when we look at zombies uh, in this, in this way, but you know, zombies, at least in the way that we can conceptualize them are a plague, right? They are something to be feared. They spread, they, consume everything right they're they're like locusts almost right they're they're a plague and yet they are you know i guess the best way of putting it is they're an infection right they're a disease and it's so ironic that many of the stories involving zombies involve a plague or involve the spread of disease as a consequence uh, we look at the walking dead it's an epidemic right uh, the zombies uh, are a disease. They are, they are, there's an epidemic out there, and people turn into zombies. There's nothing that they can do once they begin to turn. They just turn. Uh, they they turn on their base. They'll they'll turn on the closest people to them. They'll devour them. Uh, and they've got no choice to sort of but shamble along and amble forward. But it's so ironic that we look at these stories, and we look at the impact, the cultural impact of zombies. The irony is that zombies. Are grow their popularity in popular culture is growing. Uh, they they have continued to grow and grow and grow throughout the years. Uh, one film in 1932 spawned a generation of films in the 60s, and then we have novels 
in in the nineties and two thousands, and now we we have uh, graphic novels, of course, and we have, uh, and of course, when we talk about uh, the Walking Dead comics, uh, we take a look at when when they started publication. Uh, they they begin they they come out uh, first issued in two thousand three. So these they are still going strong. The Walking Dead is a very successful popular franchise it spawned video games it spawned move it spawned spawned an entire television series it even spawned a spin-off television fear of the walking dead uh it has spawned uh an entire uh it, it is it has influenced an entire generation you can scarcely go anywhere without people wearing t-shirts that say team daryl or team rick uh people are obsessed with zombies and in that way we ourselves are becoming that which we have feared right we are so influenced by zombies that we ourselves are becoming like them we love zombies they're in everything the popular video game resident evil should only serve as another major example let's take a look guys we've talked literature we've talked film i want to talk video games that's what people want People love video games, right? I love video games. But it's impossible to understate the influence. Now, people can talk about uh, the Resident Evil films. The Resident Evil films. Also, you know, let's take a look at that before we move before we move into video games because Resident Evil is going to be one of our go-to games uh, because of how successful the franchise has been. Uh, but I don't want to. I don't want to underscore. I don't, I don't want to miss out on talking about the zombie films. Uh, so we will talk about Re- the Resident Evil films before moving forward. But, you know, with, with the George A. Romero films, we get all of those films. Uh, and really, that those sort of spawn generations of films uh, that come after. But now we have Resident Evil, uh, which, is a science, which is a science fiction, action horror, hexology uh, film series loose, basically, uh, basically loose loosely based on the Japanese video game franchise of the same name by Capcom. Uh, now, of course, this is one of those scenarios in which we have video games influencing film uh, instead, but uh, we have the first film, uh, Resident Evil, which comes out in 2002. Um, we have a spread of a virus. Uh, Mila Jovovic, of course, well-known for this film. Uh, the film itself was uh, budgeted at about $40 million. It's done by Capcom. Uh, and it, it becomes sort of a almost a cult classic with the be- people that were fans of the video game series. Uh, then we have uh, Resident Evil Apocalypse, which comes out three years later, 2004. And then we have Extinction in 2007. Afterlife in 2010. Retribution in 2012. And then we got Resident Evil, the final chapter, which is uh, the sixth and final film in the series. And now uh, there's even discussion uh, that there's going to be a reboot of the film series um, launched next year. uh, And it's being worked on by James Wan with a script written by uh, Greg Rousseau. So uh, we look at the film's if we look at the total uh, budget of all the films combined, uh, the total budget for all the Resident Evil films combined is $290 million. Uh, 
And the total box office gross of these films. Uh, so we, you know, we've got. Uh, we've got six films and the total budget for all six films together is $290 million. The box office grossing of all six films together is $1.2 billion. So it's a massive profit. Films made a massive amount of money in comparison to how much money is put into them. So we talk about the, you know, sort of the critical success, you know, the movies received a great deal of criticism is, you know, many people, you know, more modern or more mainstream, I should say not modern, more mainstream people uh, who are not as familiar with the game series or not as uh, impressed uh, with, you know, with the storyline, you know, may critique it for, you know, not being good cinematically not have, you know, that acting quality that they look for. But guys, I'm just going to say this. It's not freaking Shakespeare, all right? It's zombies. And the the success of these films cannot be understated. $290 million multiplied into $1.2 billion. That's a lot of money to make off of these films. This is just the films. The video games, the video games are a whole nother animal. I mean, we look at uh, the box office history of the movies. That's one thing. But if you look at Resident Evil in terms of a survival horror series of video games, since the introduction of the series in 1996, the series itself has sold 71 million copies. Uh, It is Capcom's best-selling franchise in terms of software sales. It, in terms of revenue, it has grossed $8 billion from software sales and film adaptations, making it the high, second highest grossing franchise in Capcom's history after only Street Fighter. Uh, let's look specifically at the original game. In 1996, uh, Resident Evil sold 5.85, just over $5 million. Uh, uh, the revenue that they made was $543 million. Uh, that's the original game. Uh, the the uh, reboot of the game, uh, if we look at the game in Japan, it, it didn't do quite as well. Uh, but in the second game, they made $613 million. Uh, that's That's quite a bit of money. Uh, so this this game is making hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars. Why is it making so much money? What makes it? What? How does it make such a splash? People, it's very simple. The cultural influences of zombies, the obsession that we have with the afterlife, the obsession that we have with discovering the answers to what lies between life and death and the anxieties that we have, the social anxieties that we have regarding life and maintaining control of one's agency and maintaining uh, control of ourselves, uh, maintaining ourselves, being free of those more primal, baser instincts, uh, the anxieties we have about death have shown us that not only do we have anxieties by these things, we're entertained by things that deal with what we're anxious about. 
we are entertained by the very by the very premise of the idea that there are that there is something beyond what we understand to be life and death that there is this other place this other place that these beings are trapped in zombies scare us they make us laugh they entertain us ultimately continues to be on the rise much like uh you know much like the the whole concept of a zombie which rises from the dead uh you know to sort of plague the living zombies continue to rise their stock rises daily if you want to know just how influential this this phenomena of zombies are in american culture you need only look at the popular game played today by college students humans versus zombies i myself personally have been exposed to this uh extreme version of human uh, of tag involving humans uh involving actual human beings you know but some of us playing as zombies uh, it's a game of tag that's been played at schools, camps, neighborhoods, libraries, and conventions around the world. Human players must remain vigilant and defend themselves uh, with dart blasters and socks to avoid being tagged by a growing zombie horde. The game itself began at Goucher College in 2005. Humans, since then, Humans versus Zombies has developed an international fan base and received prominent press coverage from the New York Times, the Washington Post, NPR, the Associated Report, and the Colbert Report, who named Humans vs. Zombies as the number one threat to America. HBZ is played worldwide from Australia to Zimbabwe, and there are games on every continent except Antarctica. According to, This is according to humansvszombies.org. Humans vs. Zombies is always free to play and made available under a Creative Commons license. There are, and this, and to give you guys an idea, for those of you who are unfamiliar with this, to give you guys an idea of how much uh, has been put into this, uh, there is merchandise uh, for these things. There are there are uh, Nerf blaster guns that have been specifically made for this game. There are bandanas one can wear. Uh, there are socks people uh, use. There are T-shirts, hoodies. Uh, and it's something that's actually uh, been praised as yet another uh, activity that gets people active. Uh, the thing that's so appealing about it is it's free. You 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 don't have to you don't have to be a kid to play. And it encourages activity and team building. Let's take a look at the rules. Because I really wanted, I really wanted to, I really wanted to get into this. That's it's so exciting to me that something from, you know, something that started in such a re- what we would consider to be such a remote place, right? Such a, you know, foreign off on the fringes idea has become so big. It's impre- It's it's impressive. These are the official Goucher style humans versus zombies rules. I'm taking these directly from humansversuszombies.org. Um, as invented by Brad Sappington and Chris Weed in 2005, with a few changes since to make the game more balanced and safe. Now, according to them, they encourage 
you to adapt the rules to fit your game and account for which for what will keep your players safe and your game exciting. Um, so humans versus zombies is a game of tag. All players begin as humans and one is randomly chosen to be the original zombie or origin zombie. The original zombie tags human players and turns them into zombies and zombies must tag and eat a human every 48 hours or they starve to death and are out of the game. The zombies win when all human players have been tagged or turned into zombies, and the humans will win by surviving long enough for all zombies to starve. Uh, The equipment needed is a bandana, which identifies a person as a zombie or human, depending on where they wear the bandana. Zombies wear their bandanas on their heads. Humans wear them in their pockets or somewhere else. Uh, One must also have a foam dart blaster, marshmallow launcher, and or socks, and one index card to record their kills and information. There are designated safe zones for would-be survivors. Uh, bathrooms. Some ca- some areas are no-play zones and are permanently suspended. In places where the game is permanently suspended, blasters must be concealed and no players may be stunned or tagged. These areas include bathrooms, health centers, libraries, indoor athletic facilities, and academic buildings. Other areas are merely safe zones where gameplay continues, but humans can't be tagged unless a zombie has both of their feet outside the zone. These areas include dorm rooms and dining halls. Safety rules, because safety first, ladies and gentlemen, is even when you're trying to survive a zombie apocalypse, safety is very important. Rules created for the safety of all players are strictly enforced. Violation of safety rules will result in a ban from the game. No realistic-looking weaponry. Blasters must be brightly colored and have orange, blaze orange tips. Blasters may not be visible out inside of academic buildings or jobs on campus. Uh, this is again, and again, keep in mind, this is a game played predominantly on college campuses. Players may not use cars or play where, traffic, where there is traffic. Socks, darts, or marshmallows must not hurt on impact. So you cannot tailor your weapons to actually injure people. The humans have specific rules, and the zombies have specific rules. So let's get directly into these. And I think this is very, uh, I think this is very uh, telling. Um, human rules: Humans must wear a bandana, a head or a headband around an arm or leg to identify them as players of the game. This headband will come in handy when you become a zombie. Stunning a zombie: Humans may stun a zombie for 15 minutes by blasting them with a blaster or throwing a sock grenade at them. I'm assuming the sock needs to be clean, one would hope. Uh, When tagged by a zombie, a human is required to distribute their ID card. One hour after being tagged, you must tie your bandana around your head and become a member of the zombie zombie horde and tag some humans to survive. Your ID number. Humans must keep an index card with their unique identification number on them at all times. Staying on campus, humans must sleep on campus uh, if you need to leave campus for longer than 24 hours, contact game moderators or remove yourself and remove yourself from the game. Now we look at the zombie rules. Zombies. Zombies must feed every 48 hours. A zombie feeds by reporting their tag on the website. Uh, so they do have a website set up for humans and zombies to, you know, keep track of their points. Tagging. A tag is a firm touch to any part of a human. After tagging a human, the zombie must collect their ID card and report the tag. When you get shot, when you are hit with a dart, marshmallow, or sock, a zombie is stunned for 15 minutes. A stunned zombie may not interact with the game in any way. This includes shielding other zombies from bullets or continuing to run toward a human. 
if shot while stunned, the zombie's stun timer is reset back to 15 minutes. Wearing a headband. Zombies must wear a bandana around their heads or headband around their heads at all times. The original zombie does not need to wear a headband, however, thus making the original zombie the largest threat to human players. Other rules include blasting non-players, which is a bannable offense. Do not blast non-players. It's probably nice. This is a nice thing to not do, right? Don't shoot people not playing the game. Non-player interference. People who are not registered participants may not directly interact with the game. This includes bringing food to humans or spying for either team. As it is a survival game, this undermines the game. Safe zones. A zombie must have both feet outside of a safe zone to tag a human, and humans can stun zombies from inside of a safe zone. No shields. Zombies may not use shields to deflect foam darts, marshmallows, or socks because apparently these are not George A. Romero's zombies. They're not smart enough to figure things out. Athletes. Athletes are safe during official practices, but not on the way to or from practice. Uh, Required academic events. Similarly, students at required academic events are safe for the duration of the event, even if this event is in a free play zone, but they are not safe on the way to or from the event. And finally, one of my first clauses in the entire rule list, this, uh, this is a pretty creative game that's been come up with here. There is a very interesting rule that comes with the game, the D-bag clause. Don't be a douchebag. Everyone plays humans versus zombies to have fun, and the rules of HVZ only exist because we agree that they do. That's why the most important rule of humans versus zombies is to treat your fellow players with respect and gracefully accept when you've been tagged or stunned. Always a good idea to not be a jerk, right? Now, important to note that anyone can start a game of humans versus zombies. Uh, the only rule is that you can't charge people to play or require them to buy anything uh, there is an online free service called HVZ Source that makes it easy for anyone to start a game of HVZ. Uh, and this guide is similar to the Dungeon Master's Guide to help moderators start a new game. There is also most games of human versus zombies are hosted on college campuses and limited to students. You can search HVZ Source game for a game for a game near you. And important to note that Humans vs. Zombies is safe to play. It's a physical activity like tag or soccer, so all players are recommended to sign a safety waiver before playing the game and clear with local school, local law enforcement that they're allowed to play with their dark blasters and what have you. Important to note, this game has been played for played since 2005 17 this is 12 years this game's been around for 12 years and it's been, and it continues to be played at colleges all over the united states and not just the united states it's all over the place but it's incredibly popular in the united states uh personally having been a student at both texas tech and akron i can personally tell you that hvz has been played at both campuses and that's quite a distance apart texas the western panhandle of texas all the way to northern northeastern Ohio, uh, you know, this just goes to show you the reach of of these games, the reach of zombies uh, in popular culture. Uh, so we've got games, we've got we've got novels, we've got comics, we've got movies. Guys, 
I think it's safe to say that zombies have established themselves as a massive part of popular culture. They've established themselves as a fixture in the realm of horror. In the genre of horror, they have become an absolute fixture. In comics, in video games, in film, and now even in a game of tag, we can scarcely escape the inevitability that the zombies are going nowhere anytime soon. That one day we will see a new generation of zombie films, a new generation of zombie novels, a new generation of zombie games. It's clear that zombies have now and will likely forever be one of the most influential and popular aspects of the horror genre. And with their humble beginnings from the very fringes of Haitian society all the way to their big-time showcase in the 1968 classic Night of the Living Dead, zombies have earned their place in human history as a fixture of popular culture that whose equal will be very difficult to find. Uh, I mean, we looked, we've talked about, we've talked about vampires. We've talked about werewolves, but neither of them came anywhere near as pop became, have, have become anywhere near as popular as zombies have been. Now people would say, well, there's loads of vampire movies, Dallas. There's loads of werewolf movies. But there is nothing as impactful. And if we look at it just from a profit standpoint, it's hard to argue how successful zombies have been. Guys, that's all I've got for you. Kind of a short show today, I know. But I wasn't expecting us to get through things so quickly. And these things happen. Guys, of course, I will see you guys on Sunday for Straight Football Talk Live at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time. We're going to be wrapping up draft classes on Sunday, uh, talking about uh, the Patriots and the Rams on Sunday. So we're going to be wrapping up our draft classes, talking a little fantasy. That's all I've got for you guys. This has been another edition of the Bareback Facts and another totally driven entertainment production. Guys, enjoy the rest of your weekend. That McGregor-Mayweather fight, guys, it's going to be a big one. It's going to be exciting, I think. See you all on Sunday for Straight Football Talk. Enjoy.